The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Lord Father, Lord, there are things that you created, and when you created them, they were good. And Lord, there are so many things that we take that's good from you, and we tend to mess it up and lie about it and say that it's better than what you provided. Lord, I pray that you would take the blinds off of all of our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes, open our hearts to hear your way, and that's the best way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Did you know that approximately 16 million people today share DNA with Genghis Khan? Yeah, you knew that? Ah, I knew you'd be full of some fun facts. Have any of you guys heard of the Church of England? Is anyone aware of why the Church of England started? You're aware? You're not aware? You're aware of why the Church of England started? Why did the Church of England start? Because he wanted a different one. Wanted to trade her in for a new model. Okay. Um, how many of you guys heard of the Trojan horse? Right? That famous thing. That's uh, Paris and Helen of Troy. I, I, I start with all these things because in this world, there are many powerful forces. We, we have the physical forces that govern uh, the laws of physics and nature, things like nuclear reaction, things like gravitational force. And there's, there's only four, technically, that govern all of the interactions that we know about. But there are unseen, there are non-physical related forces that have shaped the course of history. And obviously, we're in the midst of uh, season two, going through Corinthians, uh, passage by passage. And this, this morning's text leads us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's at this point that Paul has been addressing issues that he's heard about, but in chapter 7, he flips to a new page and he's saying, now, about the things that you had questions about. Before, it was all the drama, all the problems, and now he's switching over, switching gears, and he's going to talk about the things that the Corinthians had questions about, and one of them has to do with sex within marriage. This morning, Edwin came up to me and says, hey, we are short in children's ministry this morning. We couldn't get all the teachers in place in time. Can we leave the fourth and fifth graders in the service? And I said, dude, this morning's message is the worst one of the entire calendar year to leave fourth and fifth graders in here. And you're like, if you're here and you have middle schoolers, you're thinking, okay, wait, should my middle schooler be here? Absolutely, because this is nothing compared to what some of your middle schoolers might hear or will hear as they go into high school, college, and beyond. So it's good to prepare our hearts with God's word. If you haven't flipped there yet, 1 Corinthians 7, and if you didn't get my implied um, call out, if you haven't checked out in the bulletin, things are going to be transitioning, and we'll have some big announcements coming up for children's ministry going into the new year, but I would encourage all of you to pray about your place. If you are called to make disciples of children at the chapel kids in the back, we need more teachers for all the different ages, whether it's fourth and fifth graders or whether it's preschoolers, and my favorite personally are nursery kids because they can't do anything. They can't fight back. You just pray over them, and you win. Um, the other kids, they can gang up on you. Like I think of my mother-in-law back there right now. She looks sweet and nice, you know, but just imagine 20 kindergartners all going after her at once. She would lose that battle probably four times out of 10. Um, so let's pray for, for your hearts, for the kids back there, because every week, every week, I babysit you guys so that they can learn about Jesus. This is what happens every single week. And the reason I know that's true is because they actually apply what's taught to them. Now we're going to go to the text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I'm feeling good today. Now, verse 1. 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they had asked Paul, Paul, is it good for us? And Paul says, it's good for you not to. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, if you've missed the, the past few weeks, you've got to go catch up. You've got to grab the podcast. The word for sexual immorality most of the time in the New Testament is porneia, from where we get the word. Each man should have his own wife. Because of the temptation to a whole bevy of sexual de desires and inclinations and sinful actions. Because of that, each man should have his own wife. All the men said. All the single men said. Dang it. And each woman her own husband. The husband. Right now, I'm about to read a life verse for some of you in here. The husband should give to his wife. Her conjugal rights. Hmm. Conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Anyone change your life verse just now? For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Now, this was a common thought back then. The next line gets radical. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's a common theme. Likewise, this is radical for this day and age, and I, I, for then and for now. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. We're going to stop there for one second. Actually, for a lot of seconds. Because we need to talk about this. It is, let's just get it out of the way. We've been talking about sex in the Bible, and it's not getting any less awkward every week. I'm just throwing it out there. I do believe that when God created sexuality, he created one of the strongest forces in humanity. And you can look at the physical devastation of the bombs that we can create now, the bombs that have been used in past wars, and I don't think they hold a candle to the devastation that, that sexuality can bring for, for bad on a nation or on people. The number of people who have been killed because their sexual desires became too much for them to handle is outside and beyond our counting ability. The number of wars that have been started, the new religions that have been started. Sexuality is a great good and can also be a great evil. It depends on how we use it. And in this passage, in this church body, Sex was being used in a lot of different ways. We had, we've, we've talked about and shown the guy that was sleeping with his stepmom. And then there are the people that were sleeping with temple prostitutes. Because in this day and age, part of worship experience was having sex with temple prostitutes to other gods. And they brought that into the church gathering. And Paul wants to just show us. Okay guys, I have got some notes for you. You have questions about sex. You have questions about sex within marriage. Let me just lay out for you God's plan. There is going to be temptation. If you will be tempted, have a wife or a husband. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. If you're single in here, you're thinking, man, I'm so tempted. I so need a wife or a husband right now. Don't get married just to have sex. I say that over and over and over again because I've met dozens and dozens of couples who got married because their sexual urges were so strong. And in the Christian church, we've done this really weird thing where we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about sex. We say, don't have sex till marriage. Don't have sex till marriage. And we don't 
talk about the positive side of sex. We don't read the verses to the college groups or the high school groups from the Song of Songs. We don't tell them that in the book of Proverbs, it says, enjoy the breasts of the wife of your youth always. That is a God-written line. God thought, oh, I want to write a verse for all of the high schoolers of 2019 print screen. We just don't talk about it. What does that mean? Why would God wire this in? Because there is a great amount of sexual communication going on in our culture. The temptation is at a very high point within history. Now, the Romans had a lot of sexual things that they did that we would look at and say, man, that is not right, not good, not true, not pure. But they would look at some of the things that we do. You can't drive down to Tampa without seeing billboards of scantily clad human beings. I can't drive on the Selman. I can't drive through parts of Tampa without my 11-year-old saying, look, nude women. Like, that's a weird thing to drive around. As soon as your kid can read, if you drive past the wrong building, there it is, just as bright neon letters as they can get. And Paul says, okay, so we're going to set this up. Now this, I'm not, I didn't write the mail. I'm delivering the mail. Get mad at the writer, not the delivery man, okay? If you're married, Paul says have sex. Right now, I'm guessing if you're married in this room, one of you is thinking, yeah, preach, preacher. And the other one's thinking, shut up. I don't know which one you are. It says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Every wife in here is thinking, I've got a different definition of conjugal rights. And it's interesting because in the, in the original text, it's actually using a word for like taxes, like pay your taxes, your marriage taxes. And some women are like, yeah, that's what it feels like, the IRS. Uh-huh. Maybe some men too. Don't want to discriminate. But it says you should give your rights to your wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Here's what you cannot do, husbands. You cannot go to your wives and say, well, I was listening in church today. And what I heard was you have to give me the conjugal rights that I deserve because it's in the Bible. That's like going up to your wife with the Ephesians 5 passage and saying, this passage right here says, wives, submit. To which every wife in here knows the proper reply to that is, yeah, and in the verse right next to it, it says, husbands die. Literally, that's what it says. Literally. Do not deprive one another. Because of the rise of sexuality in our culture, because of the temptations, Paul says, there's going to be this ocean and tidal wave coming towards you. If you can't handle it, have a wife, have a husband, do not deprive one another, except perhaps... Except, there's, there's one way. If you, if you need to take a break, if you need to take a break for a limited time, this is Paul's limited time offer. Do it so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And some translations have prayer and fasting. How long do you guys fast from food for, Floridians? I see you, Cracker Barrel loving people. How long? Paul says, only if you're going to pray, only if you're going to pray and just like, you're going to devote yourself wholly to God. You're going full monk and you're going to pray and then come together soon because Satan, Satan, the accuser, Satan, the adversary, he's coming to tempt you if you stay apart from your spouse for too long a period of time. 
I know all the single people in here are like, this is not me. This sermon stinks. I'm leaving now. I need you to have this in your mind as a, a construct. Because when you go into marriage, there are weird things that happen. For example, in many, many conversations I've had, people come up to me. And if you were to guess, guess the top three things that people seek counsel for, what's your guess going to be? And we're not going to, you can say it out loud. No one's going to judge you here. Sex and finances. And we could just stop there, right? Sex and money. Could be relationships next. But sex and money, over and over and over again. And if you're going to guess a common phrase that I hear when a couple comes to me, they're having issues with their marriage, what are one of the first things that comes out? After all of the walls begin to come down, someone says, I don't get enough sex or money. <laughs> now it's, it's interesting because our culture has taken sex and sexuality out of the context of being this, uh, this massively beautiful cosmic design of God to mingle souls and bodies together. It, they've said this is just a physical act. And you can use sex to gain leverage in different relationships. Some use sex to gain leverage in marriages. They say, no, 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 he's not nice. She's not nice. How could I be with them? They are such a bad person. They annoy me so much. If you're single in here, I'm just going to give you a pro tip. When you get married, the person you are marrying is a sinner. The person they are marrying is a sinner. That's you. When you get married, you will annoy each other. It is part of the marriage deal. Because you don't have an angel personality marrying an angel personality. You have a broken person with baggage and pain and a past marrying another broken person with baggage, a pain, and a past. And if you don't annoy each other, it's because you both are still lying and you're pretending you're on a date. But what happens is this, you get bugged by them, you say, I, that's it, I don't even want to be with them. And they get bugged by you and say, I don't want to be with you either. And the very thing that God created and gifted to marriage that says, this is what will bind people together, becomes the last thing you want to give to your partner. So the Bible says, pray and fast. There's a pickup line in there. I tried using it, it doesn't work, I'm just letting you guys know. Um, <laughs> you can walk up to your spouse today. If you're the one that wants to initiate, and you say this, this is a great pickup line. It's a biblical pickup line. Uh, hey, babe, did you want to pray and fast together? Because it's been some time. And the Bible says that only if you pray and fast. Or if you're going to go have lunch, you just say, we want to go out to lunch? Say, no, I'm praying and fasting today. Then you wink at him. Bling! There's <laughs> a biblical pickup line. Now, now you have to ask yourself, why, why is Paul making such a big deal of, of this? Because it sounds, if you were just to read this, and let's, let's read this through a lens of a 17-year-old male, okay? 17-year-old male reads this, single, looking out, loves the Lord. He's seeing the girls out there that he might want to have a wife one day. Read this through the lens of a 17-year-old male. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. All right, all right, all right. Verse 2, if a 17-year-old male reads this, because of, of temptation to sexual immorality, oh yeah, I got that. Each man should have his own wife. Yeah, yeah. Each woman should have her own husband. Okay. And the husband should give his conjugal, give to his wife her conjugal rights. 17-year-old male is thinking, amen, preacher, preach on. And likewise, the wife to her husband, that's what I'm talking about. Then you get married. Get married. Weird things happen. Because if you get married and you 
You follow the biblical path of, of having sexual relations with your spouse. You're mingling your souls. You're building this intimacy. What does sex lead to? That's what I tell all the couples I do premarital counseling with. What does sex lead to? Babies. Not always, but a lot of times. Guess what babies lead to? Less sex. God is like, I'm going to create sex, and it's going to make babies, and they're going to make a lot of babies, which leads to barriers for sex. And I'm just down here scratching my head. Lord, what were you thinking? This is hard. It's crazy. Well, I've had conversations with my, my son about it. We had the sex talk, and we've had subsequent talks after that. And it's interesting because just like you and I, when we were teenagers or kids, you can't imagine parents having sex. You can't imagine teachers having sex, parents having sex, all those authority figures in your life. You're like, no, they just don't do it. They never did. They might have seven kids. They don't, they never did, never have. I don't know what that is. The, the reality is that so often it it's actually becomes true. I've met with many couples who, when they launch their last child, look across the table and they don't know the person sitting across from them any longer. Because the intimacy emotionally, financially, and physically have all slowly crept apart and they found their lanes of comfort and you, you just became roommates somewhere along the way. You didn't mean to. You didn't mean to hurt someone. They didn't mean to hurt you. Some of you right now are like, I am a roommate with my spouse and this is terrible. I need you to know that it goes in seasons through every marriage I've ever known and talked openly with other people and my own. Sometimes life is just going and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, is, we, I don't even, what, do you want to go have lunch or something? You got to find new ways to spark that connection. Whatever it is for you, this idea of sexual desire to cultivate it, we have to cultivate it because Satan is waiting to get at you. And if you don't believe that's true, I googled uh, sexual brokenness throughout history. I googled sexual sins in history. I googled the effects of sexual uh, affairs throughout history. I discovered a lot. Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson. I'm going with dead guys. We'll get all the way up. I mean, just over and over and over and over and over again. And when I say these names, you just know. And it doesn't, sexual sin, sexual brokenness, it doesn't just say I'm only going to target men or women or politicians or actors or musicians. But you cannot go one week in the tabloids and the magazines without seeing affairs without seeing sexual desire that was given into. If you say certain names, there's no job that exempts you from this list. There are certain jobs that seem to aid you in sexual brokenness and temptation. Like take like actors and musicians. Let's get people that are very, very marketable for their external appearance. And let's send them to galas with fancy dresses that are more like twisted up bikinis that cover certain parts. And then let's have them dance with all of each other's spouses. And then we're shocked when these people work four months away from their spouse and they're working with some other guy named Brad Pitt. I mean, I wouldn't leave my wife alone four months on a movie set with Brad Pitt. Homeboy was good looking back in the day. I don't think my wife, if I got into acting, would be like, yeah, sweetie, you go do you. You hang out with Jennifer Aniston. I mean, that's like old now, right? I don't even know a younger I don't know. <laughs> I don't even, I can't think of a, an attractive actress because I'm so in love with you. 
You want to pray and fast today? <laughs> I feel vulnerable. Satan is going to have tactics to get into your relationship, and one of them is going to be a lack of connection. Some of you might not feel like it, but sometimes you have to say, Lord, I need, I need you to change my desires to desire my husband or my wife so that Satan cannot get in this garden. And in the Song of Songs, it says that we're going to keep the foxes out, the things that will seek to sneak in. A fox isn't just prouncing in. A fox is going to prowl, sneak, crawl in to break through the fences of your marriage. And this is what Satan will do. He's waiting for an opportunity, which is why Paul says, if you're not having sex, be praying and fasting. And I know, I know, I know, this is a, a difficult one. Because if you're here and you're like, okay, I'm a single person, or I've been widowed, or I'm divorced, how does this fit in? What do I do? I need you to hear in the very beginning, Paul says, it is good. It is good to not have sexual relations. And this is where all of the monks, all of the priesthood celibacy stuff came from which is why it goes on, and it's, it's, this is a very terrifying part of this, uh, this passage. Verse 6, verse 6 says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Paul is calling his gift of celibacy a gift. And he says everyone has their own gift. My gift is I don't have these desires that are burning me. Each, each of you has your own gift. Some of you need to get married, some of you are rock solid because the, the Spirit of God has given you the, the self-control and the desires for Him. You don't need these other distractions in your life. Verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. Yeah. Remain single as Paul is. But if they cannot exercise self-control, if you're not married, if you're single and you cannot exercise self-control, you have these temptations coming into your life and you fail again and again and again, they should marry. For it is better, this is the verse, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. There was a, an old preacher, a Scottish preacher in the 1800s, he preached this text, just it is better to marry than to burn, but he left off with passion, just like get married or burn. Can you imagine the local engagement ring stores that Sunday? This is all the young men like, I don't want to die. With passion. There's this very clear picture. Jesus never married because we are his bride. Paul might have been married, most historical people believe, because you had to be married to be part of the Sanhedrin that he was a member of. But at the time of writing this, he is unmarried. He is single. And Paul is saying, it's better if you can do it. You want to know why? It is so hard to be married. Let me give some hope and some joy for those of you who are single and you're thinking, maybe I don't want to be married. I'm not sure. Here's how easy it is to, to be not married. You can wake up in the morning and do whatever you want. You're just free. Nobody's stealing your coffee. It's way cheaper to make two eggs instead of at my house, when we do breakfast with me, four children, and my wife, we cook like a whole Costco flat of eggs for one morning. Man, if I was unmarried, I'd be like, I'd have all the time. I could pray all day. I could go on walks leisurely. Now my walks are because I'm chasing a human. If I was unmarried, the only person I would argue with would be myself. That's a dumb idea. Yeah, I know that's a dumb idea. Okay, I won, I think. You know how many arguments I win at my house right now? Zero. 
It's by design. You want to pray and fast later, babe? She's going to hate this sermon so much. I'll be praying and fasting for a couple days. To the unmarried and the widows, it's good for you to remain single. It is good. It is good. I need you to hear this because for so long and so often, and I'm guilty of it, it feels like the church is pressuring. Get married. Get married. Get married. The Bible says it's good. If you're not married, it's it's still a good thing. It's good if you're married. It's good if you're not married. If you're going to burn with passion, get married. If you can have the self-control, man, you just press into Jesus. You can, instead of doing the, the dating advice, run after the master on mission and then look around and find your mate. You can just run after your master on mission for him and not have to look around. Singularly laser focused. Paul even says this. The Bible says this. When you get married, it brings things into your life that, that are good, but you have to tend to them. You have to feed your children, I've heard. So, what in the world? How does this fit into the whole picture of the Bible? Like, have sex with your spouse, and if you have sex, don't do it. Passion's going to burn you. Satan's trying to sneak in to break up your marriage. What does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with the gospel? Context is always key in the Bible. Anytime you read a Bible passage text, here's a good way to study. Here's a good way to learn. You start with the whole book of the Bible that you're in. You find out the background of that book. You find out what's going on in that church. You find out what's going on in the people that are being written to or the stories that are being written about. And then you ask yourself, okay, all of God's purposes and plans were aimed at the cross. Everything in the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi was saying, get to the cross. We need to show people what God's love is like for his people and how the cross is the one place where perfect love, where complete unity, where complete forgiveness is bound And everything in the Old Testament looks to that point, and everything in the New Testament, all the writings look back to the cross. So why would God create this passage? Why would God hit, I need all of the people to know this. It's not just so that we could go home today, and some of you husbands or wives could say, I demand my conjugal rights, pay the taxes. It's not just that. It's, if you haven't listened to the last few weeks' sermons, it's because, it's because God created this nuclear-level power. And Satan knows that it's nuclear-level power. And it can be used for good, like a nuclear reactor, for intimacy, love. And it can be used for great pain, like a nuclear bomb in your life. Some of you have experienced the nuclear explosion in your lives and can attest to that. How many of you have experienced the nuclear reactor this way that creates intimacy unlike anything I've ever experienced personally or known? When I read through, and today I'm, I think I'm just going to do this because I want to. I want to read through. The, I love reading through the Song of Songs. Just reading through it. It's just this dialogue of she and then him and then the others. And it's a back and forth poetry. And I love getting to the point where it's just dripping dripping with days of our lives feeling soap opera dialogue. I love it. I love to read in the Bible about how a man treats his bride and about how the bride treats her husband. And in the beginning, it says, don't awaken love until it's the right time. Don't awaken love until it's the right time. And then when it's the right time in the book, she says, my garden is unlocked to you. And the man, you could just sense in him this giddiness. And that's young lovers. But there's the other side of it. When somebody has guarded their marriage for so long, we were at staff meeting a few weeks back, and I, I messaged, I can't remember their names. I think it was Rhonda and Ray. 
And there's this old couple. Remember Rhonda and Ray? Rhoda? Rhoda. Oh, yeah, that's right. Rhoda, because it's from the Bible, Acts chapter 12, Rhoda. And um, these people were like, you take Dana Carvey in that turtle movie, and you just bring him down even more. Just old. And they were moving. And they walked by us, and they stopped. They said, it is so good to see young people praying. These people could have called anybody young, okay? And it's so good. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you're so sweet. And we looked up at them because we were sitting down low. And I said, someone said, how long have you guys been married? Do you remember how long they were married? It's like 70-something years. 70-something years. Charlie was there. How long have you been married? We've been married as long as he's been alive. <laughs> Can you imagine? You've been married as long as my father-in-law has been alive. Because, never mind. But in my mind, that's a little, it's older. It's older. And they've been married that long. And we had the same feeling some of you are having. No way. That's crazy. And when, every time you see it, I know you're just like me, most of you, if you have a heart. You see an old couple, like a guy that's got arthritis everywhere. And he's got a cane. But you see him pull his door open for his sweetie. And you see him walk into Panera or Chick-fil-A or wherever it is at the speed of molasses in winter. And it's a one time. Like if it's someone else that's like annoying or a teenager just lollygagging with their pants under their butt, you're like, come on, get out of my way. But when it's an old couple, you're, we're just there like at a petting zoo. Like, this is so cute. Oh, my gosh. Why? Why is that? Because it's so rare, I think. Part of it is so rare to see that the two people journeyed through this life. And, and had enough so that Satan could not destroy it. Because if you think he's not trying to destroy marriages, you're out of your mind. If you think he's not trying to get us to use sex as a physical-only act, as a leverage act, as something that we can hold over somebody's head, or as something that we can tempt people out of a relationship or out of self-control with, if you think that Satan is not doing that, you are out of your ever-loving mind. I don't like speaking positively, but I, I need you to understand Sin within us is devious. I believe what the Bible teaches about spiritual beings. They're not dumb entirely. As a matter of fact, they've been doing what they're doing longer than you and I have been alive, longer than America has been here. Satan, demons, fallen angels have been manipulating and drawing people in to sexual sin and brokenness for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years potentially, depending on your view of Genesis. They know what they are doing. It's not like they're just thinking simple, like, hey, you know what we should do? Let's just put up billboards. Let's make certain clothing acceptable. No, 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 no. Let's take a culture and we're going to steep it so deep in sexuality that they wouldn't know what a God-honoring self-control moment looked like if it hit them in the face like a two-by-four. Let's put so much sex around them. Let's lower the bar so low that when they just come right up to the bar, they think, ah, I'm really godly and Christ-centered now. Godly and Christ-centered is, like, I, I read this, this passage about marital sex, and I wonder, how often is Paul meaning here? They say a sexless marriage is approximately 10 times per calendar year. Sexless marriage. Average couples, depending on the phase of marriage you're in, could be once a week, 
could be three times a week if you're lighting up the sheets, is what one article said. I went to reputable sources such as Cosmopolitan, People Magazine, etc. Yeah. And you're thinking, okay, wait, what if I can't? What if I can't have sex? What if my spouse and I just don't? What if we don't? How long can you not eat for? Well, physically, what if we can't? I get it. Like there's circumstances. There's different relationships. I, your marriage will look nothing like my marriage. I promise you, if you try to use the same pickup lines I use, you will fail because you don't know the original Hebrew. And mine fail too, and I do. It's tragic. You need to, though, have such an intimacy with your spouse that Satan doesn't have a door. He's a master at finding the cracks in the doors. He's like that, that broken seal in that one window in your house that you don't discover. You don't discover it until all of a sudden your electric bill starts soaring. And you're like, What's going on? There's a, there's a crack in your window right here. There's, this seal is broken right here. And when Satan gets in, you can't get rid of him easily. He's a devious one. He's crafty. He's not going to show up with obvious, overt temptations right in front of your face. He doesn't start there. He sneaks. So because of your lack of self-control, get yourself a wife or a husband. And because of your lack of self-control, make sure if you are married, you're having sex frequently and enjoying your spouse. Don't use sex as a weapon because it is not. It is a gift. It is a nuclear reactor that can bind you closer to a human than anything else in this world can. Body, soul, spirit, bringing together as one. The two shall become one. It's a simple homework today. If you want to know how to build intimacy with your spouse, have sex. If you're single and you're like, I want to get married, but I'm not, here's what you do. You take all of that sexual angst, all of that sexual desire, and you aim it toward, get a job and move out of my parents' house. It's just, take it, and it has a lot of power. You just, I want girls, I want a, I want a relationship. You just aim all that toward, become a grown-up. Whether you're 12 or 19, just aim it toward grown-up face. And you'll find out how fast you can become a grown-up. I promise you. You say, I'm not going to look at anything inappropriate. I'm not going to try to find some sinful outlet for my, my sinful desires. Instead, I'm going to take all that energy. I'm going to ball it up and I'm going to shoot it toward adulthood. When you do this, when you do this, you'll finally find a place where you're at peace. You'll know who you are. You'll be blocking out the, the tactics of the enemy. The homework is simple. Have sex with your spouse t today or tomorrow or the next day or all three of those days. And instead of just having sex as the physical act that it is, take a moment to remember everything in the Bible that we've been talking about. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Have you been naked and unashamed with your spouse? Just in the light, look at each other and say, I love you. Have you become one flesh? Has there been an intimacy, not just of your bodies, but of all that you are? Are you still hiding things from your spouse? Because some of it might happen long before the physical act. Some of you have been hiding things. You've been one and a half. You're like, oh, I shared this part of my life with you, but not this part. I don't want to tell you this secret because I think it, I don't want to hurt you. No, no, no. You lay it all out. That's what naked and unashamed means. That's what one flesh means. It means you know what's in their mind. They know what's in your mind. You tear down all of these things that the enemy could use, and you say, now we can be intimate. 
what are the what are the rights? What are the taxes of marriage? I don't think it's just purely the physical moment of, of intercourse. It's the whole experience from sunup to sundown. It's the touches on the shoulder. It's the kisses on the cheek. It's the flirting. It's the Chick-fil-A lunch dates. And if you're here and you're like, I want that. I want that so bad, but I'm so single. Take all of that want. Redirect it and say, okay, what can I do to become the most God-centered, God-chasing, God-loving person? And whether you're, whether you're 12 or, or 70, if you, if you are thinking about a person, my dating advice always goes back to the three M's. It's just run, run, run after the master on mission and then grab a mate and then marry him. That's it. Because anytime we don't, we're letting Satan in. And it's a terrifying thing. It's better to marry than to burn with passion, fam. In this moment, when you're with your spouse this week or when you're single thinking about your future spouse or when you're single just totally pl- pleased with Jesus, remember this. That when Christ was on the cross, this is a weird connection, but I don't know, this is what it is. It is what it is. When Christ was on the cross, that was the beginning of our ceremony with God forever. We have a wedding feast with the Lamb, and we are called his bride. I don't know what that looks like, and as a male, it was very difficult for me in early Christianity. I could not sing Jesus, lover of my soul, for years because it felt weird to me. But now I'm just cool with it. I'm like, yeah, I'm your bride. You're my man. The intimacy that I have with my wife, somehow I have some weird of that with you, Jesus. And I don't always get it, but I can't wait to see what it is. Because all of this picture that I'm talking about of marriage, remember it was created, last week was created to point us to God, to connect us to God, to show us what God is like, to show us what his love is like, to show us what his intimacy is like, so we could have a small baskin Robbins sample taste of God's intimate forever love. And you guys, we get to do this today, tomorrow, and the next. All the guys said? All the wives said? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your, for your word on sex. And Lord, it's, a, <laughs> it's just weird to talk about it. And I wanted to, Lord, I just wanted to say it enough so that people can let go of some of the awkwardness on this topic. So that husbands and wives who have been struggling for years maybe can finally come to a place where they can pursue what it means to be naked and unashamed, what it means that two become one, what it means that a man could look at his wife and a wife could look at her man and they could see each other and know each other as, as you, Father, know the Son and the Spirit. Or that there could be love in the marriages here in such a way that, that the world would look on, outsiders would look on and say something is different. Father, there's so much brokenness in this area. Lord, we pray for all of the public brokenness that has gone on recently. We pray for, we pray for relationships that are, have been drugged through the mud. We pray for relationships in here where there is no trust, where there is no sense of security, where the idea of intimacy is sickening. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing and restoration, that you would help people to come forward and get help and get counsel and get prayer. Jesus, it's all for you. Help the marriage beds at the chapel be lit on fire today. And let it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.